Hello everyone and welcome to the Lisa Burke Show here in Luxembourg and welcome to all our listeners in Luxembourg and of course abroad and no more has that been evident as we can see in the studio today we've got a Luxembourg national who actually is very unusually for us an expat who normally resides in Poland but we're going to start with the story of Iran today coming up to a very special one year anniversary and we've got many people in the studio today and also an Iranian joining us from London uh, just to introduce the guests to those listening. Of course, you can watch us on RTL Play. I have Laurent Urez, who is our Luxembourger living in Poland. We'll come to you later, Laurent. And then to our Iranian guests in the studio, Vahid Beshesti. Oh no, I hope I pronounced that. Beshesti. Vahid Beheshti joining us from London, Shabnam Sabzei, Nahid Mohammadi, and also Human Eslami joining us in the studio and from London. Welcome to you all. It's great to have you joining us. I'm going to just give a small introduction. Vahid Beheshti, Iranian-born British independent journalist. I mean, you've done so much. You're a human rights advocate, activist as well, director of Door TV. And for the last 15 years, you've been highlighting Iran's human rights violations and you work on countering extremism. You've been on a 72-day-long hunger strike from February campaigning, as we can see you right now, outside the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office in London to ask the UK government to prescribe or IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, an international terrorist organization. This is backed by a number of politicians and activists, both within Iran and internationally. 125 MPs support your campaign and have written a letter to the Foreign Affairs Office. You, Vahid, have become a central figure in the movement to free the world from the terrorist activities and suppression by the IRGC. Shabnam, I have to say thank you to you. Shabnam Sabzehi, you have brought all of these people together. You are an Iranian-American activist living in Luxembourg since 2014. You left your own birth country at the age of 17 because, in your own words, the oppression and brutality caused by the IRGC regime and its occupation of Iran. And you haven't been able to go back to Iran since, forced to leave there. You settled and resided, you studied, in fact, in the US, graduating from the University of Central Florida. And since Masha Amini's murder in September 2022, you have been amplifying the voices of Women Life Freedom Movement and you're very involved in helping the Western media coverage for everybody to learn about what's happening inside Iran. You are also the co-founder of the Iranian Diaspora in Luxembourg. Nahid Mohammadi, you are from Tehran, in Iran. Uh, you have uh, been in uh, 14 years here in Luxembourg, I believe. Is that correct? Oh, 14 years in the banking sector yes. in Iran. You've been in Luxembourg since 2017 to do, to continue those studies at the University of Luxembourg in finance and fund management. And Human Islami, you bring a completely other point of view. Born in Iran to a Baha'i family, you face discriminations due to the faith where you were not allowed to study in official universities because of your Baha'i faith and consequently you pursued your bachelor's degree at BIHE University, which is an unofficial 
institution established by the Baha'i community inside Iran, despite government pressure to shut it down. And in 2017, you relocated to Luxembourg to pursue a master's program at the University of Luxembourg. And you're now doing your PhD there too. So welcome to you all. Now, I want uh, for our listeners to set the scene. So I'm going to start with you, Shabnam. You brought everybody together today. You are very vocal within Luxembourg. You've brought the diaspora together here in Luxembourg. Tell us two things, why we're here and also about how large the diaspora in Luxembourg is. First of all, thank you very much, Lisa, uh, for having us here today. Um, Why? Why? Because Masa Amini. Masa Amini was murdered by the hands of the fascist regime, gender apartheid regime, only because of head covering that was improper. Not that she didn't have it, but because it was improper to the standards of the regime. But this brutality of the regime has been going on for 44 years, and the world has been silent, in many ways actually even giving a hand, helping hand to this fascist regime. As an Iranian-American that has not been back to the home country for 40 years, I could not be silent any longer. Um, The protests after the regime murdered Massa and then the days after murdering all the protesters, the peaceful protesters, imprisoning over 20,000 protesters, murdering, raping, torturing, went on and on, and the world stayed silent. Here and there, picking up from the propaganda of the regime, but the outcry of the fearless Generation Z has moved all of us, all of us outside. We're not in the streets of Tehran or the cities of Iran. We're, the only thing we can do is to amplify their voices. And this is what we're all here. All activists in here in Luxembourg or up abroad, we're all coming with one demand, no longer. Silence is violence. We no longer can just be sitting there passively watching what happens in Iran. How many Iranians are there in Luxembourg? From what I understand, about 3,000. Many of them have been here for many years ago, even way before the revolution of 1979. And there are some students as well in the University of Luxembourg. There are a number of different communities here, but from what I understand, 3,000. Which is actually a very sizable community for Luxembourg compared to other communities, uh, which I know the figures for in Luxembourg. So it's a lot of people. And as we have seen, actually, two of the people here present have come to study in Luxembourg as well. And of course, the university has opened up its doors to many, many people from all over the world. I want to firstly turn to Vahid, because you are extremely active. You, you are sitting right outside the Foreign Office right now. Um, Vahid, this is a, a movement which has come to the world's attention in the last year. But of course, as Shabnam said, it's something that's been going on for a long time. I also want to pick up on her point. Uh, she mentioned the education of people being educated outside. In fact, this seems to be a female story. And as it happens, I was, I was doing some research Females are highly educated in Iran. In fact, I believe 70% of the university population of Iran are female. And yet something shifts. We have this morality police. It's very fierce 
on females. Uh, why do you think we have this seeming disconnect between an extremely educated female population of Iran and then a very, well, it seems slightly patronizing <laughs> morality police to, to tell females what to wear? Why, why is that? Uh, I think uh, we can elaborate on that issue um, from this point. This is the first, I would say, uh, woman-led revolution that is happening in the world. And why uh, females are in the front line of this uh, movement. I can go on and on why, uh, why this is happening. But what I think, because females are being suppressed more than all the other uh, diversities in Iran. From the beginning, this regime, from the beginning, uh, established its base on suppressing females. Because if you look at it from one side, females are the base of one family. So to suppress the whole nation, the best way this regime uh, find out for itself, it was to target the center of one family, family by family. So if you look at the uh, female in one family, uh, that's the, uh, she's the mother of the, um, that family. She's the wife of the, uh, um, of, the hus- uh, of the husband. She's the manager of that family. She's the one who gives love to all the members of that family. When you suppress and target that point, basically you suppress the whole family. And this is what they done from the day one by taking the basic right of that person, the female of the, the, the woman of the family, taking the rights of what to think, what to wear, forcing them to cover their head, which is totally against human rights and even against their Islamic laws. Because as many times I stated strongly, we don't have even one verse in Holy Book of Quran which it emphasizes uh, about the compulsory hijab. We don't have anything like that. We don't have compulsory hijab in Islam at all. And this is not what we are saying. Even their own uh, clergies these days, the clergies which they used to work in, uh, with the regime um, years ago, and now they are separating themselves from the regime, they are saying that. They are saying none of the things that they do doing under the name of Islam, it's Islamic. But they so haven't something su- they haven't suppressed the education and this for me seems a paradox. I'm very glad of course they haven't. <laughs> but uh well two things here. There's a huge brain drain from the country, a huge brain drain because of what's happening and you have many many highly educated males and females leaving Iran because of what's going on with their families. Uh but if you wanted to suppress uh females why not suppress them at education? I'm just curious. Why do you think they haven't stopped that? Because they cannot do that. You know, they they do what they can. 
at the moment that as we're talking, they are uh, trying, not today, it's just, I would say, a uh, few years after the revolution, uh, they had some something like uh, educational and cultural revolution happened, which they closed all the universities for for some time. But the resistance of people, it was more than their suppression. So whatever they can, they do. The, the places that they cannot, you know, you see the education is growing because they, the, they cannot do anything more than what they want to do on that field. Shabnam, I want to return to you. Uh, I know that you haven't been able to go back to Iran since you left your home country at the age of 17. I also have a number of Iranian friends here in Luxembourg and I've spoken to them over years actually about this topic and uh, I've asked them if they wanted to talk about it and they do want to talk about it but on the other hand they don't want to put their family in danger because all of you here present by taking this stand today and putting yourself in front of a microphone you are actually putting yourself and your family at risk is that correct? Absolutely we have had a number of different activists here in Luxembourg, as well as other countries around, that there have been threats not only to their lives right here, and in fact, it's been recorded at the police of uh, Grand Duke Police here, but also they've been threatened. The families have been threatened in Iran. Um, I know personally of an activist in France. This has happened to her family in Iran. Um, yes, um, all of us are, uh, let's say, in danger so to speak. But uh, let's look at it this way. We take it to the streets. We've gone to Strasbourg. We've gone to London. We've gone to Brussels with full protection of the police around us. And we're able to scream and shout out what our wishes are. But in Iran, they can't. Mm -hmm. They're being shot at in their eyes, the young girls, young kids, young generation. But they're taking it to the streets every day, not knowing if they're ever going to come back. This is the least we could do here. It seems that what you've said uh, is exactly what we feel is happening, which is that the the press, what we like to believe is the open press, the voice for those who can't speak out in Iran are coming out in other parts of the world. And, and turning to you, Nahid, I would like to hear your story, uh, why you came to Luxembourg. I know you have a, a long history in banking in Iran, but then you made the move to Luxembourg in 2017. Exactly. Um uh, actually, it was uh, just to change uh, career path and I would say uh, lifestyle, uh, but uh, and also all um, you know social uh, difficulty that uh, you face in Iran. Um, but uh, I would like to um, use this uh, opportunity to highlight uh, women uh, situation at workplaces uh, in Iran. Um, you know, uh, women uh, at uh, workplaces in Iran uh, face uh, with different discrimination uh, frequently in uh, recruitment, uh, hiring, uh, hiring, and uh, uh, scale of salary uh, and uh, opportunity uh, promotion opportunity, and it is visible, uh, particularly in uh, um, governmental organization 
by forcing a stricter uh, dress code rules and uh, actually uh, women are obliged to cover their hair uh, wear a long loose fitting clothes to cover their figures and it's not just about dress code um, actually uh, it's a kind of a controlling factor and uh, uh, indeed uh, women's uh, uh, career uh, and uh, their longevity in career depends on uh, the, uh, their level of obedience to uh, this kind of strict rules. Uh, if I want to uh, kind of uh, clarify this situation, um, I'd like to point out that uh, in Usually in a governmental organization, as a, a state bank that I used to work at, uh, there is a, mm, a department called security department uh, that um, literally works as a mm, uh, morality force. This uh, department um, easily interfere uh, in the uh, promotion procedure. Main part of job interview is done by this uh, department to make sure that uh, you uh, potentially will follow uh, all the strict uh, rules and um, also you will be aligned with uh, them. Uh, they closely monitor uh, employees, mostly female employees' appearance and um, adherence to compulsory hijab uh, and um, uh, fi uh, reported, filed uh, in uh, their um, HR profile. Uh, consequently, uh, if there is any report that one day you dressed against uh, this strict rule, uh, doesn't matter uh, how your per um, performance is, uh, this uh, could uh, serve uh, against your promotion or uh, termination. So you're constantly living with this in your head, over yes. your head, which makes it very difficult to be free to work and think creatively at all. Again, it's uh, suppressing the uh, the brain capacity of what seems to be mostly females. I want to ask you then further, because you, you lived under that, working very successfully, I believe, in the uh, you're an economic expert in the banking system for 14 years in, in finance. Um, how does that reflect within family structures? Does it feed down into families? Does it influence family ideas, uh, how males treat women within families, and also the school system at the young years for girls? Uh, well, uh, you know, uh, I would say that... Uh, mm, uh, recently, uh, you know, families structure completely uh, changed, uh, maybe because of uh, the level of education that uh, parents got. Um, and uh, um, it's a kind of different world inside your family and uh, actually at workplaces or public. Uh, you know, uh, just about myself uh, in, inside family. Uh, I had this um, opportunity to express myself, uh, to express what I want. And uh, actually, uh, I had this respect from my, especially my father, my brothers, um, and I have their, all their support. Uh, but 
uh, back at uh, work uh, spaces and public uh, all the time, uh, I had this fear that uh, I need to protect myself against all this discrimination. And uh, it's not easy uh, to live daily with all these uh, challenges. And for schools, for, for young girls at schools, I mean, obviously something's going right because 70% end up at university uh, compared to the, the males, in fact. And I believe also, in fact, the government have tried to do something to encourage men to go to university. So tell us about the school situation. How is it for young girls coming through schooling now? What are they taught? Because, you know, for some of us with our own cultural mindsets here in Luxembourg and, and Western Europe and etc. We almost cannot conceive of something called the morality police. It sounds like something out of Harry Potter or something. It, it doesn't seem real. So can you tell us what it's like for a young girl growing up in school right now? Uh, yes, exactly. It's a sad story that um, young people routinely stop by police, morality police, that uh, they uh, they have this responsibility to uh, check your appearance and adherence to a compulsory hijab. And actually the laws uh, justifies uh, this um, gender apartheid regime uh, to allow uh, like increasing um, involvement with um, people's citizens' private life. Uh, you know, in recent years, it became common uh, that police um, raid um, private party and arresting to arresting uh, young girls and boys both uh, because of uh, because they uh, were against a compulsory hijab. And um, also, um, unfortunately, a worse uh, situation and worse um, uh, um, condition are happening. Uh, the, this regime um, um, introduced new uh, measurement of a compulsory hijab uh, that uh, allows um, the authority to use um, uh, surveillance camera um, to um, recognize uh, women uh, and girls uh, who um, actually not uh, adhering to a compulsory hijab and um, arrest them, force them to uh, sign the document and promising not repeat again uh, this uh, 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 hijab uh, offence. And uh, thank you. I, I just want to turn back to Vahid Shabnam. Um, when this happens to a young woman, do we have any idea of what the police do to that young, often young woman? Do we have any statistics on, is it just the signing of a document, forced signing of a document? Is there any brutality involved? Is there any rape? Uh, let's picture it this way. You don't know what's going to happen to you if you're detained. Uh, we have had, uh, and this is, by the way, it's recorded in all the uh, Western medias, even <laughs> surprisingly, uh, that uh, they, once they are detained, they're tortured, they're raped, because this is the belief. This is crushing the soul of these protesters, violated in such way that even if they come out, if they make it out, they're crushed to the point that 
there is point of no return. And we have had many of these young underage girls that they have come out and they have committed suicide days after. This is the picture. This is what's happening. This is what's happening. And the world is, stays silent. You asked me a little bit earlier, why, what is your, why do you want to speak up? is because not only I want to amplify the voices, and this is all of us, including Bahit, why would Bahit have to go under over 70 days of hunger strike just so that the world could hear him to do the right thing to stand on the humanity side of the history? Why? Why is, and he will explain to us, of course, why should he have to undergo such thing such extreme measures so that somebody could listen, but they're not, and they're not. And this is why we're here. As an Iranian diaspora, not only we're amplifying the voices, but we want to make sure that no longer the appeasement policies of the Western governments continue to keep that regime in power. Vahid, very eloquently put by Shabnam there, I know there's a very complex history with different countries with Iran. I know you can't give us in a few minutes the, the you know centuries worth of complications, but can you tell us in a few paragraphs why is the world so silent? Unfortunately, the human right is not in priority anymore. That mm-hmm. is that is the problem. But I don't think uh, it's just human rights. I think it's to do with the very complex history and links uh, between Iran and other countries. It's not just, obviously, we're talking very much about a human rights issue, but why the world is silent, I think, is not just to do with human rights. I I, I just wanted to start it from that. That's the the main, if, if you start from that, it's, of course, obviously, the human right is not, in priority, but when it comes to Iran, it's getting worse and worse because you are facing with a very complex system. So they have different um, uh, different affiliations. And for example, in Iran, we have two armies, which uh, we have our own army, which is the military, uh, which defends the Iranian borders, but on the side that we have IRGC, which is the mafia group that controls the whole Iran. But when it comes to uh, the Westerners, when we ask them the responsible responsible organization for suppressing people, for all these rapes, for all these tortures uh, in these uh, 44 years is IRGC. Basically, IRGC is the heart of Iranian regime. But they, w- their response is, okay, IRGC is the military of the country, which is not. But they succeed to sell this story, which IRGC is a military of uh, of Iranian uh, of Iran, which is not. So when you are facing and. They are investing, for example, in Ahmadinejad time, I'm talking about 20 uh, years ago, nearly 20 years ago, $800 billion gone out of Iran. So this money, this crazy money, is spent on Iran, in uh, Iranian regime lobbies, and uh, spent spend 
on putting their own people in different media around the world. So that's why it's very hard to, uh, for the world to hear Iranian voices. Um, I can make it short here. I am 202 days here. I saw many things happening in front of foreign office. One of the stories is this. I saw few uh, figures, they walk into our foreign office and they give them advice. So unfortunately, our foreign office here recognize these people as expert, as Iran expert, which we recognize these people as Iranian, uh, Ira- Iranian regime lobbies. One of my area, which I'm constantly talking to the MPs, to the lords, uh, to the ministers here, to make them understand these people who gives you advice and they sold you these people in a, through different channels as, a, as, as Iran experts. They are not Iran experts. They, they sell you wrong information. So this is one of our jobs, as Shabnam described it perfectly. We try, especially in this last year, to become... Iranian people lobbies to give the right information. One of the examples is your program. Now you put time, you gave us 40 minutes to give the right information about inside of Iran. What's happening in this, in the prison of this regime. The, the closest regime that we can compare the Iranian regime to, it's Nazi's regime in Hitler time. Sometimes they go worse than that. How can you rape 16 years old girl with 15 people for five days, then threw her body from the fifth floor to the street? You cannot find this in the in history, but they do this because they want to put the fear in other people. So if you come to the street. If you demonstrate, this is what's going to happen to you. And as Shabnam stated, they released some of them to go out and speak about what happened to them, to spread the fear. But fortunately, this has come to end. Iranian people, as I'm talking to you, now they reach to that level which they said, death or freedom. Because they don't have anything else to lose. They lost everything that they had as a human. So they reduced them to the level of even less than slaves. I'm this ver- is the situation of Iranians inside of Iran. I'm very conscious. I mean, obviously, anybody listening to that story about the 16-year-old and I know that rape is something that happens in war. It's used as uh, almost ammunition in a way, unfortunately. And anyone who has daughters, anybody actually full stop, can't imagine the brutality of that. I want to stick with where you are. You're, You're in a very prominent part of London for a reason. We all know the history of the Iraq war as well. And it would seem to an outsider that the West, if you want to kind of call it that, is very frightened to do anything uh, because of 
mistakes that have happened in the past when they've tried to do something because the history is so complex and there's a patchwork of various histories between certain countries in the West and Iran as well. So what can they do that could be of help? What should they do in your opinion? So I'll divide uh, this by two, very short. Whatever happened in Iraq, in Syria, it happened because of Iran, because Iran, uh, the in- interference and the influence of Iranian regime into these countries. So if you look at Iraq now, Iraq is part of Iranian regime now. Or what happened to Syria, to Yemen. So this is the, the, the main problem in the region, even between Palestine and Israel. I have a long explanation about this, which is not the place for it, uh, between Palestine and Israel, is Iran. Whenever they come close to peace, you see, you know, there is something happen which it links to Iranian regime. So, so whatever happened is because of Iranian regime. But what we can do at this moment, we are not asking the West to help us to overthrow this uh, Nazis regime. We are asking them to not su- stop supporting the regime. We're asking them to stop identifying them as a normal uh, regime. We stop, we, we're asking them to uh, stop normalizing the regime. That's all we're asking. We are, Iranians are going to do this job to overthrow this regime. If this regime doesn't have the uh, support of West, it cannot. It cannot last few weeks. That is the. That is our uh, 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 the request from the West. A stand by the, on the right side of history because definitely less than a year, Iranian people are going to do the job and they are going to the free their countries. But how the Western leaders are going to look at Iranian faces? After after the Iranian revolution, they have to. It's a, it's a big choice to stand on the right side of history, which is stand on uh, uh, next to Iranian people, not this brutal regime. Shabnam, I want to turn to you quickly before I turn to talk about the Baha'i faith. Actually, many people in the past have visited Iran. It's a stunning country. There's such variety, such deep, wonderful history there, which is enormously tainted right now. But for anybody thinking about visiting Iran, if you look at various sites, all foreign offices will say, don't do it because there's a a threat of being taken hostage, in fact. So have you anything you would like to talk to our listeners about if they wanted to visit Iran? I'm glad you actually asked this question. Because this is top of my agenda. That's one of the things that I'm working on or trying to really give the accurate picture. Because it seems like you, you said the foreign offices are saying, but are they really saying that? Are they really working on it? Are they really campaigning against leisure travels to Iran, but Iran that is occupied by this Nazi regime? That let me just give you one quick little example, and that is a name called Johann Flodris, Swiss national diplomat, 
the regime, the Swedish regime government, they actually didn't release his name. He's been there 500 days, over 500 days. Why now? Why now? So to answer your question, the foreign offices are saying so lightly, yes, don't go. But are they really taking it to their media and saying, no, do not go as long as this fascist regime is in power? Iran is, and I love my country. I haven't seen it. I'm dying for every corner of it to see, the four corners of a beautiful, rich history. I would love to see it. But please, please, please reconsider going to Iran that is occupied by the mullahs. Not now. Because what happens? You will become the bargaining chip. For the regime to make money, let me bring you to the attention of over $16 billion, $6 billion of it yesterday of all days, the Biden administration released $6 billion of it yesterday, 9-11. Wow. Sad. Really, really sad. Really painful. So to Iran through Korea and via Qatar. So no, the, the, going to Iran, traveling Iran right now, no. No, 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 please. And I know that we have other guests, so I don't want to speak up, but please look it up. We have European citizens, nationals and dual nationals that are hostages in Iran for Iran's agenda to stay in power a little bit longer. It's the cash register of the regime. Do you want to be doing that now? Iran is beautiful. Yes, please go. But not now. Thank you, Shabnam. Human, I know that we've been speaking a lot about the what's happening to women yeah. in Iran, but of course you represent the Baha'i faith, and I know there's a a very lively Baha'i community in Luxembourg as well. And you've come here because you face discrimination. You studied in a university set up by the high community in Iran, which is not officially recognized by Iran, by Iran. And nonetheless, you've come to Luxembourg. You're now doing your PhD here in Luxembourg. So talk to us a little bit about the experience of of other communities within Iran, because in fact, it's, it's again, a, a hugely diverse country with many, many different faiths. Exactly. But just to start, I'm not representing anyone. I'm just as a person here because you just mentioned I'm representing the Baha'i faith. No, uh, I'm, I'm just... I meant you're representing it because you are of the Baha'i community. Yeah, yeah, sure. Community. <laughs> so I'm, I'm representing my own uh, personal experience and also uh, any diversity that lives in Iran, I think they all face discrimination and persecution. So I just try to maybe a little draw the picture. But just to start from you, what you said, Iran is a vast country. It's a large country. Like if you put Spain, France and Germany together, they're still uh, smaller in the size from Iran. And then in this country, we have about 90 million people, which um, they, they, they're coming from different uh, uh, ethnicities, different religions. And um, so it's really diverse. It's very diverse. And uh, Baha'is are, uh, let's say, the largest non-Muslim population in Iran. And uh, since the beginning of the revolution uh, in 1979, uh, there has been the subject of systematically uh, persecutions. And uh, it starts uh, with different uh, persecutions, with, uh, with uh, death sentences, with... with uh, with um, firing them from their jobs, firing, as as uh, earlier someone mentioned, it was the um, like education revolution. They were thrown out of the uh, universities as a professor or students. They were avoid to have uh, edu- higher education. Um, 
So this this has been there from uh, from last in last forty、uh, four years, and、uh, we 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 see that.、Uh, This is not only Baha'is who are facing this. Also, other minorities are also fa- facing this. All,、uh, either the ethnic,、uh, ethnic, the, the, let's say,、um, diversities facing this, and also religious、uh, diversities. So we have we have many different.、Uh, so we have like、uh, in Iran, we have、uh, Persians, we have、uh, Azeris, we have、uh, Baluch, we have Kurds, we have Lors, many, many, many others. And w- within this, we have also. Jewish people,、uh, Zoroastrian people,、um, Armenians,、uh, so different beliefs, different.、Uh, but whoever is not thinking as the as the government wants them, they are classified as second gen-、uh, second citizen, second class citizen, third class citizen, fourth class citizen. So as women are already by default the second class, so if you are again in a min-、uh, in a let's say diversity, then you are even classified as another.、Um, Another kind of citizen. So,、um, yeah. So for for from my own experience from the from the childhood, I remember that、um, I was maybe three or four, and、um, our our house was raided with the with the government people, and、uh, I was I was a child. I didn't understand why, but I remember that they took out all of our.、Um, We had a VCR. They took our VCR. We took all of our books. My sister had a keyboard. They also took that, and they never gave it back. So this is the picture I have, like the earliest picture I have, because and only because of our fate, they just came. They arrested some other Baha'is. We were lucky that my father was not there. Otherwise, they would have arrested him as well. But um, uh, this is this is the life of um, uh, uh, diversity living in Iran. So.、Um, You have then problem in schools. They try to pick on you with this、um, system that they have that they control the schools with the same uh, security uh, offices that they have. So they try to、um, dehumanize you.、So、they try. They try to、uh, tell to others, "Ah,、oh, these are dirty. Don't go close to them. Don't touch them because you will become dirty." So like like what Nazis did with the Jewish people, I think back in、um, back、uh, in time. Uh, in Germany, so. But do people not have the mental capacity to override that, or is it just such a brainwashing system?、Uh, happily,、uh, recently it all changed. So, so I would say with the、uh, with the social media, with the internet, with people ac-、um, being able to access free knowledge. Of course, it's still really hard in Iran because the internet is filtered. For example, Facebook is filtered, YouTube is filtered,、uh, many many websites are filtered. There is no free、uh, news agency that people can access, so they all need to pass these filters to access free、uh, information. But even though with all of this, it's drastically changed in a good way, and that's what、um, I think has been changed in last years, even even with a higher acceleration. So we see that. People feel that we are all part of the same story. So previously, the Baha'i、um, started a campaign like "Our Story Is One," and it was the 44th anniversary of、um, 10 women,、uh, which were executed in Shiraz, in one of the cities in Iran, just because of their faith. The, the oldest was about 50, and the youngest were about was about 17 or 16. So, and this、uh, was just just to. Focus that. Look, this is our story. Every all of us as Iranians,、uh, from different、uh, backgrounds, from different、um, 
diversities, we have the same story. We are, we, have, we, we are looking for the same values. We want to have equality between women and men. We, we want to have uh, democracy. We want to have uh, freedom of expression, freedom of thinking, basic human rights. And our story is one, and we, all doing, we are trying to make an uh, Iran that we can all live happily together. So this is the picture that uh, I, I can draw a little. Thank you so much, Human. That's a, a story that, uh, for so many reasons and layers, really resonates and reflects Nahid's story as well. Thank you all so much. I think this is a story we'll return to within the course of the year. But now I need to turn to our next guest in the room for something completely different. Uh, Laurent, a little introduction to you. Uh, you are Laurent Urez, born in Luxembourg, raised in Amsterdam, Belgium. You've lived in Luxembourg, Germany, and now in Poland. Poland with Indeed. your wife and family. You started as a software engineer in the space industry, then transitioned to the automotive industry, a head of innovation in a Luxembourg automotive supplier company, moved to Poland in 2011. Uh, you have a wife and son there and you have established many projects there. A publishing house, yes. which publishes contemporary European authors, a technology and innovation consulting firm. And you've run your own startup and co-founded Learn for the Future, which is a foundation to help students learn for the future. You have a huge passion for composing music. And all of this interdisciplinary work has brought you really to the book that you're here to talk about today. The the kind of the, the duality of everything. Indeed. Yeah. So thank you for having me. Um, yes, the, I would say the book, uh, Creative Convergence, I wrote uh, at the beginning of this year, um, is both uh, maybe a reflection of my personal career and my interests, uh, which lay both in the humanities and in science. But it was also inspired by, uh, by a show a documentary I saw on, on Netflix a few years ago uh, about uh, artists. And uh, each, in each episode, they were talking about different uh, artists, uh, composers, uh, architects. Uh, and, and one of the show was uh, with uh, somebody called uh, Nuri Oxman. Uh, she's a, an American uh, professor at the MIT uh, Media Lab. And uh, what was interesting about her story was not only that she was, or still, of course, is working in, uh, in, in, in this intersection of disciplines where she, she and her team work on uh, materials based on... on, on on what, she, what you can see in nature, but not only the, the structures, but also how they are, they are created. So she, she uses uh, silkworms to create uh, uh, materials that you can wear um, and stuff like that. But what was really interesting is um, at some point she talked about um, a concept she had about creativity, which she called uh, the Krebs cycle. Yeah, the Krebs cycle of creativity. <laughs> yes, and, and if you, serious. yeah, yeah, and if you remember, if you go back to your biology classes, <laughs> you remember, the, you might remember <laughs> the Krebs cycle. Remind us. Yeah, remind yeah. Us. <laughs> okay. So it's it's uh, it's what happens in in, in every cell of, in, in our body. Well, actually, all cells is transforming oxygen into CO two in order to produce uh, energy. So that's the, the gist of it. So she took the same idea of a cycle and that transforms. And um, instead of transforming oxygen, the idea was, well, can we transform knowledge through different disciplines? And her four disciplines uh, were are uh, science, technology, art, and design. And 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 she she looks at how knowledge. Uh, circles around uh, these disciplines and transforms and leads to creativity, and 
I found at the time I found that very interesting. Actually, I remember pausing the show and drawing in my in my notebook, taking a, a picture and just putting into it, you know, my digital notebook. And well, I can see that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I still have my. <laughs> you have a notebook here, and yes. I know that when our previous guests uh, were talking about Iran, you were making notes. Yeah, I was making notes. Yeah, some things yeah. I would want to look up uh, definitely, yeah. and and some things maybe we can talk about. There was something you mentioned about surveillance cameras, and I was thinking about, you know, that. And maybe going on tangent here, but still, I think it is interesting. It's I think the point of this is yeah. tangent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> is, that, is that you could, uh, you know, with, with now with inter artificial intelligence, which was is and was created at uh, intersection of disciplines, mathematics and uh, and and uh, software engineering, but also linguistic and stuff like that. And now we have these AIs that are so powerful. And now you imagine you put that in the hand, and I can imagine it's already in the hand of, of these kinds of states exactly. that use surveillance cameras coupled to AI and are now able to, you know, almost blindly identify people that are misbehaving. So that, 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 I know that's that a crazy... Yeah, that's well, a crazy, one of the things hmm. that stuck with me is surveillance cameras can yeah. uh, track people by their gait, the yeah. way in which they walk. Indeed. So now, now I imagine you use it as a way to look at sentiment, uh, how people talk uh, over chat rooms, uh, maybe phone calls. And now the power is not limited to people anymore. It's, it's, it's limitless. The way it can control and it... it There's a chapter in this book about, uh, about uh, you know, how can we make sure that uh, whatever we do, uh, we uh, incorporate um, uh, ethical and moral point of views in our crea uh, creativity, right? So make sure that, uh, that whatever you create is not abused. Right. And it's a very big conversation oh, yeah. topic, the ethics of AI oh, yes, yes, yes. within the developers community. Yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. Uh, there's actually some, uh, something called AI for Good, uh, yes. yes, and, and they look at these kind of topics. So yeah. you you were really <laughs> yes, so <laughs> caught by this Netflix. I know that yeah, yeah, yeah. the program is abstract, the art of design. It's fantastic. <laughs> I highly recommend. You know, more than my book, I recommend yeah, yeah, this show. Yeah, it's this, very this, nice of you. this is amazing. This is uh, <laughs> photographers, architects, uh, because it's really interesting. It's a little bit different and, uh, because not only do they interview uh, the artist, but they actually follow them. Uh, on a project they are currently doing mm -hmm. so you actually see the creative process and that, that's that's quite amazing right just so it's uh, yeah so that's interesting anyway so uh, yeah so i looked at my at my notebook last year uh, for whatever reason to be inspired to do something and i found a note and i was like yes uh, i i clearly remember watching the show i clearly remember that i clicked something in my head because it gave me an understanding of of there is actually no duality, probably. It's probably just knowledge, and there are different ways to acquire knowledge about nature and humans, and, and, uh, and um, yeah. And so well, I picked teachers I picked up, have known yeah. that for a long yes, time. absolutely. Teachers Stem. know that uh, yeah. children learn in different ways. Some are visual, some are yeah. audio, some absolutely. are kinesthetic. So yeah. it's the same way for us. The way in which we absorb yes. information must be the way in which we transmit it as yeah. well. I, I do agree. Uh, there's, of course, an argument to make why you cut things into disciplines. Uh, there's an argument to make because you might have different methods to acquire knowledge and, and to do research. But I think at some point you need to get back, or some people at least need to get back to a more holistic approach. It really depends also how your brain is wired. Some people are more wired in you know, going to the vertical, into the detail, and some people are more wired to be horizontal and to see connection uh, between different topics. Um, but I think that, and uh, that's also something I cover in my book, is that if we want to address 
systemic societal problems, the ones we are facing today, might it be environment, might it be society, whatever it is, I think it can only come from uh, interdis interdisciplinary research. It can't, can't be uh, uh, a single solution uh, from one domain. And, and we have seen it, uh, especially in, since the Industrial Revolution, is that we are stuck in these ways of thinking where one domain uh, dominates all the other domains and look at where we are today. It doesn't fit. It doesn't really work. <laughs> yeah. Well, don't you think that universities are changing? They are. And they yes. are more, I mean, they're even establishing, we can see it at the University of Luxembourg, oh, for yes. example, yeah, yeah, interdisciplinary, uh, well, not only subject choices, but also they're putting different people together in a group. Well, they have research centers, right? There's they one have. about... Uh, uh, biomedicine, yes. for example. Uh, it's a shiny example of what I want to show in my book. Um, uh, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I finished my studies uh, 30 years ago, so it was very different. <laughs> it was, you know, you, do you, math, do physics. You may have finished university, but I don't think you finished your study. You're clearly a yeah. lifelong learner. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's good to see that this is coming back to um, universities. Um, what I try to show in the book on top of that is that Uh, it also work. It also no, sorry. Let me reformulate that. This kind of approach also works in uh, daily life, uh, in, in in work environments where you try to solve issues. Uh, uh, this interdisciplinary approach helps you to see things in a different uh, perspective and make sure that it's inclusive, right? So I think this is very important. Um, Yeah, you're right. Uh, with the with the research centers, I think uh, we are very lucky in Luxembourg that we do have those. I think uh, it was made possible because yes. the university is so young. Indeed. So they were maybe they were not stuck. They in, weren't in, stuck. In, It's in, only about 21 years old. Indeed. Or so, yeah. So they could think freshly about how to to bring that. But also talk to us about your music because <laughs> I know you've got the software engineering background. Yeah. But I was listening to some of your compositions online. I do suggest anybody goes there, looks at his website, and sees the beautiful dances that you work with dancers. In fact. Indeed. Yeah. That's the um, music has always been a passion and. Uh, Maybe in the time uh, when I was growing up, again, you know, this uh, way of thinking of you know being able to do many things uh, at the same time was not. Uh, uh, well, the, the people were not education was yes. slightly more siloed. Exactly. So, but music was always my passion, and um, many years ago, probably 15 years ago, I rediscovered that passion, and I thought maybe I could do something with that. And uh, yeah, I uh, I focused on classical music. Look, what you would call contemporary music, so mostly uh, uh, for orchestra or string quartets. And um, But I, I thought that um, doing music just for the purpose of doing music was maybe not uh, conducive to any aim I could have or, or participate in society. So I, I was focusing on, on dance. Uh, so I have had the chance with, uh, to work with uh, several internationally recognized choreographers and different dance Uh, ensembles in the United States and Canada. Uh, They're very Japan. beautiful. They're very, yeah. very beautiful. Yeah, well, I've been very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. luck that's made. Yeah. Uh, and of course, I'm quite sure your software engineering has helped your musicality because people who. That's what they say. Well, that's I, what they say. In the I sense don't. That, I'll tell you why. Because uh, a lot of people learn music, but uh, developing music is not just that. You also have to have huge technical knowledge in order Maybe. to. Yeah. To, to really develop it and to put it out there <laughs> because the way to put music 
out there True. absolutely requires technology. <laughs> okay, <laughs> this I agree with you. But I have also heard uh, from more, uh, you know, from more point of view of how the brain might function is that maybe mathematics or, or you know, on top of that, uh, software engineering, which sorry, uh, might be based on a little bit of mathematics, is connected to music. Maybe something to explore. I'm not sure about that. Oh, I uh, I think so. Yes. I think so. There's a lot of logical links there. Uh, Finally, I want to ask you about the fact that you are a Luxembourger living abroad. (laughs) I am, I am. (laughs) And actually, it's so funny because when I I found out that you were were based in Poland and I was looking at your name, I thought, this is a very un-Polish name. name. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) And my brain Mm. took a few (laughs) seconds to kind of figure out this because, of course, also didn't make sense when I called you, right? No, With the Polish it, phone number. It didn't make sense at all. I was really, uh, for a few seconds, I was, my brain was working yeah. overtime. Mm, there was a huge yeah. disconnect there. For Luxembourg, of course, any name fits because it's so international, but more unusual perhaps in Poland, but maybe not. Oh, no, us. it is. Yeah, yeah. I think we're only three uh, Luxembourgers in Poland, which is me and my two sons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, and the ambassador. <laughs> Probably a few more, but uh, off, uh, yeah, we're not many. We're not many. Uh, yeah, Poland, why? But simple. My wife is Polish and uh, we spend uh, many years in, in, in Luxembourg. Uh, my first son was born. Uh, and then after a year, we decided maybe it's interesting to, to explore other countries for me. Yeah. I've always been moving, so... You've lived all over the place. And yeah, what's so the experience like as, a, as an expat abroad coming back to Luxembourg then? Uh, good, good. Uh, well, I come back every year, so it's not um, the change is not, you know, that big. But I do see some change. Um, but it's still the country I love. It's still the city, which is still amazing. It's Babel. It's uh, <laughs> you know, you sit down. You, you know, when you were sitting down, I was I was trying to 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 uh, guess the language you were speaking. Uh, ah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in the reception uh, yeah, area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's all over the place. You sit in a cafe in Luxembourg City. You I have to tell you a funny story. Yeah. We had uh, uh, somebody of our team wrote on our, our team's chat the other day. He was mind blown. He was sat down at his desk and behind him there were workers literally putting up... Um, something in the office mm. uh, and uh, manual laborers and he said within a few minutes he heard five languages yeah. five. <laughs> <laughs> you know this uh, absolutely that's yeah, when we went, I remember when we got married uh, uh, was it the Luxembourg City uh, whatever you call it and uh, <laughs> yes, we uh, call it Luxembourg City <laughs> no no but at, um, at uh, La Mairie but, uh, yeah, the, yeah, the town hall the town hall yeah. and uh, at the time and that was Many years ago, it was already 158 nationalities represented, but I think we are 180 now. What I read recently, I'm, I'm not sure, but I'm quite sure this is good for the for the Krebs cycle of creativity. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, yes. I just want you to talk to us about what could Luxembourg do better. Given that you live abroad, you can come back with fresh eyes. What do you like about Poland that isn't present currently in Luxembourg? Uh, that's a very difficult question. I mean, uh, when I moved to Poland, uh, Poland was is is a new economy, right? It's in the sense that it only opened up recently, it joined the EU only a few years ago. So opportunities are farm-bound. You can almost do anything. I was able to open the publishing house. Yeah, it's yes. incredible reading your CV. Yes, so Absolutely these incredible. Are, these are things that are almost impossible in Luxembourg because everything is established. Uh, there are almost no niches. It's very complicated. What could do Luxembourg better? You ask a good question. I, um, I, 
I leave that with you. Yeah, but I think I think I think uh, there's what maybe maybe there's one thing uh, which has to do maybe with what we talked about interdisciplinary research and 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 um, what Luxembourg is doing not only in research but also in you know I worked at IE I worked at SES large companies quite innovative and people actually don't know about these things right outside of Luxembourg. Well, we're trying to change yes. that. Yes. That is my mission. <laughs> It's always reduced down to banking, right? It still is. Right? It's just funny, right? Not anymore. Yeah. Not anymore. Oh, not around is. this table. Not around this table. No. Now, here is a wonderful example of, yes, of that from a different perspective. Thank you all so much. Thank, Thank you. you, of course, to Vahid, based in London, uh, for all of the work he's doing. Thank you, Shabnam Nahid Human, and also Laurent for everything you've brought to us today. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have any thoughts, you can always write in and find me on social media. It's very easy to Google that. Thank you. Mm-hmm.